What we're seeing, I think, geopolitically is a realignment of who your friends are in the world. Europe is going through what I think has been one of the biggest public policy blunders of this century, of this millennium, I guess, by basically outsourcing to a thug. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, Mexico City Pop-Up. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and it's always great to see my amigo, Chris Sands at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hey, great to be here, Scotty. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. <laughs> Thanks for being had. Uh, <laughs> we're here at the North Capitol Forum, and we're rec- recording podcasts with some of the distinguished speakers and honored guests. And Chris, I'm excited about the conversation we're about to have. Why don't you introduce our guests properly? I absolutely will. Rob Wilderbor is the executive chairman and co-founder of Martin Ray International, a global auto parts supplier, one of the biggest in Canada and really one of the biggest in North America. He's not just... Uh, an executive, although his company has 38 divisions and operates in the US, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Europe, and China. He also is a thought leader and he's been involved with think tanks. He was a partner in Wildeboer Delis, a law firm that practices corporate securities and tax law that he founded in 1993 and he remains a counsel of the firm. He's uh, been involved, he's vice chairman of the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association of Canada, Canadian Automotive Partnership Council, and a member of the Ontario Manufacturing Council. He's a member of the Economic Advisory Council, the Minister of Finance. Finance in Canada, chair of the CEO Manufacturing Advisory Council. It goes on. But what you learn right away when you meet Will, Ron Wilderbor is that he is about getting things done, he's about thinking them through, and he believes in North America, which makes him the perfect guest here as we bring Canusa Street to Mexico. I agree. It does violate our not, no lawyer policy, but you do more than just practice. I apologize for so. that, but once a lawyer, you. <laughs> You know, I thought it was out, but they bring me back. <laughs> yeah, you can never escape. Well, just to kick off, we're here in Mexico City. What brought you to the North Capitol Forum? Why Why are you here and what are you hoping to get out of it? Well, I think two things. One is it's great to come down and visit some of our plants. Uh, we have 16 plants on 11 locations in Mexico. We have 7,500 employees. No kidding. Of, wow. One of the three largest international auto parts uh, suppliers. Uh, in Mexico and we come to see our people and we had a fantastic visit with our Salau plant and on Tuesday it's one of the best stamping plants in the world. Uh, best what kind of plants in the world? It's a stamping plant, a metal forming stamping plant so it okay. makes a lot of parts for the T1XX which is a Silverado and Sierra. Okay. So we see our people whenever we can. Uh, the other thing is you know we're a big uh, we're a big North American supplier, we're a world supplier but big North American supplier and we're really very large in Mexico. Uh, we have uh, over a billion dollars U.S. in revenues in Mexico. And the beauty of what we're seeing in North America with the USMCA or the CUSMA or whatever you want to call T-Mex. it. Yeah. T-Rex, T-Mex, yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever you know, it is. Um, new NAFTA, you're not yeah. supposed to use that term. Tra- trade agreement but, that we have. But, but the trade agreements are, are, are reflective of our belief that the North American region is a wonderful place to do business. Uh, we live that every day. But we think that it's becoming very much in vogue for people to see it, particularly in the United States. We're a good friend of the United States. Mexico is a good friend of the United States. We often get taken for granted by that. But the U.S. is we blessed. We, Canada, yes. you say get taken We're for blessed. granted. Okay. We're blessed. In North- the United States is very blessed in North America. It's a great, great economy, great country. It's got oceans on each side. It's got a fantastic neighbor to the south, mm-hmm. which has a lot of resources, a lot of people, a lot of competitiveness. 
and it's got a fantastic neighbor to the north with lots of resources, lots of in, industrious uh, people, and you know, to a certain extent, I think it's a region that's going to be uh, dominant in the 21st century. When, when you think about, when I think about the North American neighborhood, I think uh, often say we're blessed by our neighbors and yeah. we're blessed by our lack of neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about exactly. other, you know, think about Israel, think yeah. about their neighborhood. They're they don't yeah. feel quite as blessed by uh, their yeah, neighbors. That's a too. tough. That's a tough neighborhood to grow up. In. It really is. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to. I want to ask you a little bit. It always seems to me in North America, looking at Canada's free trade, then NAFTA, and moving forward, that the British used to say trade follows the flag and the whole system of the expanding yeah. empire. I always feel in North America, the flag follows trade and governments play catch up trying to get barriers out of the way yeah. where the private sector's already gone and already yeah. opened up relationships. And the thing that's on my mind this week, we just had the Inflation Reduction Act passed in, in the yeah. United States and it corrected something that had been in the discussion for a while. The idea that we'd trying to get to electric vehicles, we would only uh, provide subsidies if the vehicle is 100% made in the US. And that showed a real ignorance of the way vehicles are made in North America, but it was fixed. So can yeah. you talk a little bit about that and, and what it well, took to convince it, it people? It showed a, a real ignorance of what actually happens in our industry. And uh, you know, the, the, the free trade negotiations was 95% related to the auto industry. And, and uh, you know, the argument that we've made for, for decades is we make things together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Canada, we produce a lot of vehicles. We use a lot of parts from the United States. Um, 80, 90% of those vehicles that we make are sold in the United States. For us, we make things together and within companies and also in, within the industry, we view borders almost as impediments to the way of making things. Mm -hmm. um, and so to a certain extent, we've gotten very good at working through border issues. Mm -hmm. Even in the context of, of the pandemic, you know, we were in a central industry. We had people crossing the border. It got very sticky for a while. It was less efficient than it should be, but there was a general recognition that we make things together. And so we think that's a model for a whole lot of other industries as well. And that's why I think we're mission critical for this. Yeah. And where do your inputs come from? Are they all around the world or where, you know, you yeah. we make things together, but where do you get the inputs to make those things? Yeah. There, uh, different auto parts suppliers work differently. Um, we happen to be a, a world leader in lightweight structures. So we use steel and aluminum uh, for a lot of our, our vehicle structures. Yeah. Um, we tend to be able to source that very well in North America. I mean, aluminum is... Mostly is, Canada, I would assume, right? Um, it depends where we are. So okay. our plants tend to be close to the assembly plants. Um, and what happens, for example, on steel is it's resale. So the customers buy it in bulk and we get allocations. We don't have to negotiate directly with ArcelorMittal or Stelco, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then we process it. And so there's, there's enough steel in North America. There's enough aluminum in North America. Uh, in terms of some components, it's, it's a little more difficult to source. You know, as we see the growth in electrification and in battery chain and so forth, then we get into a discussion of rare earth metals. Where do we get those? Where That's do we right. process them? And I think you're seeing that dialogue as well as we're as, as we're going forward. Yeah. Do you th just stick with, sticking with that for a minute? You know, we hear the automakers. Uh, General Motors is a member of the Canadian American Business Council, and and they talk about vertical integration, like so that car makers are going to be in the minerals processing business yeah. in North America pretty soon. Do you do you see that coming? Do you see that coming quickly or what do, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's coming. I think I, I think you 
know, we believe in electrification. We think it's a very, uh, it's a very good trend. We think it's going to probably come slower than, you know, most people say because you have to get the supply chains and, and you actually have to have people who will buy, buy the vehicle. So there's three questions that arise in electrification. One is what's the cost to the consumer? Um, you know, is it a niche product for wealthy people as their second vehicle or is it? Which the, it is the, now. Which it is right now, for sure. Yeah. You need infrastructure. Yeah. And it's in, and, you know, and that includes, you know, if you live in an apartment building, where are you going to charge your vehicle, right? And so you have well, to deal with that. And the third one is the people making the cars and people making parts for cars got to make money. You right. Know, money has no soul, eh? As they say, <laughs> as, uh, you know, Frank Stronach used to tell me all the time, money has no soul, huh? And, yeah. and, it, and it's true. You have to earn a return. So we can talk about policy all we want, but at the end of the day, you know, we have to see what really works on the ground. And I do think we're seeing a lot of electrification. So part of that is how do you deal with the supply chains? And the supply chains includes, you know, the pricing of those materials, which has gone up tremendously uh, with uh, war in Ukraine and that type of stuff. Um, and, and we have to work through it. But I think we're an industry that thrives on innovation and we'll work through a lot of these things. It just takes time. Well, and the, the, the infrastructure, that middle thing that you said very quickly, um, lots of implications. But one of them is not just if you live in an apartment, where do you charge it? But if you drive, yeah. you know, Chris and I talked about this on an earlier podcast where we talked about electric vehicles. Um, if I'm driving from my house in Virginia to our place in Vermont, uh, we'd have to stop a whole lot of times to yeah. charge, and I'm not, a, you know, it would add many hours to an already pretty long road trip. So we're not there yet. No, I think you, you know, you, you can uh, do some nice sightseeing along the way as you recharge your car. This is, uh, <laughs> there's, there's no question about that. But, but, but these are things that, you know, um, are coming. It's a question of perspective in terms of what we, what we do. I mean, you know, we talked about the McDonald Laurier Institute previously and, and, uh, uh, good Canadian, good Canadian think tank. Great Canadian think tank. I was chair of it for eight years when it was a startup, and now it's an established thing. But Brian Lee Crowley, one of the great things he did was write a book uh, called Gardeners versus Designers. So we can design things. We can say, do this, and public policy will do this, etc. I'm more of a gardener. I think you create conditions that allow people to really flourish in the context of that. And a lot of the solutions to climate change policy, electrification, are being designed by policymakers. But ultimately, you've got to create conditions so that people will actually follow. And I think that's much more efficient. That's certainly been true in our industry. Um, you know, we can figure out very well, given the ability to work, say, in a region like like this one, uh, to figure out how to get things across borders, how to allocate people. One of our biggest issues right now is people. And so we've been arguing down here, working with uh, Mexico and the United States and Canada, what we really need is the ability to move people, talented people, not necessarily with PhDs or masters or whatever, to be able to launch product and, and just move them around. Like I say, borders are boundaries for us. We have great people in various different places, and we have to almost have his squads going going across uh, North America in order to be efficient and compete with the rest of the world. Well, exactly right. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk a little more, Chris, uh, about moving people and about the talent shortage that sure. you face. So uh, let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Absolutely. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. 
But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-U.S. relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. All right, welcome back to Canusa Street, and I'm here with Scotty Greenwood of the Canadian American Business Council, um, and we are uh, talking to Rob Wildeboer, who uh, is the head of Martin Ray, uh, one of Canada's great one of the heads. Companies. I got a CEO who's also my co. -founder. All right, we'll give him some credit, but you're the one who's here. CEO, we don't want to slag the CEO. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. All right, well, we're, we're glad we have you. We've only got a few minutes left, Chris, but go for it. Well, I was going to ask a question because one of the things that politicians, I think, and and statesmen have been bringing into us is a, a changing relationship with China, and it. it really isn't about dollars and cents, it's about geopolitics. Wow. And one thing we got from China, with, it came with strings, was low cost. Yeah. And as we move to our supply chains away from China, for reasons that matter, for sure, we're going to add some costs. So how do we get that cost back out of, is it efficiency? Is it making the border more functional? How, how do we compete if we're no longer going to have these cheap inputs? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. We talked about it a little bit uh, this morning. I think that, you know, long-term security also means you have to make adjustments in cost. Or, and I think that, you know, we've got a market that can be big enough to generate costs with productivity savings as long as we can move people and resources around. At the same time, North America can't do everything in the world, right? We've got to figure out who our partners are. We can do a lot, for example, working with Europe, say in pharmaceuticals or a number of other areas where they're good. They're, they, they can be a safe uh, free trade block partner. I think Asia's two Asia's, right? It's not just you have the China Asia and you have the non-China Asia. Yeah. And you can have a relationship with different ones, including selling your product to them, which helps lower costs because you've got yeah. higher capacity and, and so forth. And so what we're seeing, I think, geopolitically is a realignment of who your friends are in the world. Europe is going through what I think has been one of the biggest public policy blunders of this century, of this millennium, I guess, by basically outsourcing, saying, you know, we're clean and we're uh, renewable focused and effectively um, outsourcing <laughs> their energy uh, security to a thug. Russia. Okay, that's what Russia, yeah. Now, and, and, and now they're basically saying, you know, why did we do that? Well, because you did it with a lot of short-term things and not looking at the geopolitical realities of our time. We're in business, right? The neat thing about business, folks, is we can talk about policy and, and theory and that type of stuff, but we're only sustainable as a company if we're making a buck, okay? And we've got to figure that out. And the interesting thing is that, you know, and, and public policy is part of this, and we have inputs to that, and we work with politicians and that type of stuff. But I don't care about the next election. I care about my people over the next decade. And it's the same with my CEO, our, our executive team, the general managers and the plants, and the people on the floor. That's how we look at these types of things. And so we ask the same geopolitical questions that governments do. We tend to have you know, perhaps a long-term better view. We made a determination a long time ago after customer pressure not to go to Russia. Why? I don't trust dictators. Yeah. Right? We don't, like, like you know, it goes well for a while and then it doesn't go so well. Right. You don't, you don't want to be beholden. You know, the late great, if I could just jump in, the late great John McCain, a wonderful friend of ours, uh, United States Senator from Arizona, used to talk about Putin and he would say, you know, he's nothing but a thug. Uh, with some bandits who owns a gas station. 
Yeah, and exactly. and he's McCain said that for years, and we're seeing it now. And if yeah. and if he owns the only gas station in your neighborhood yeah. and decides to shut it down, you're in trouble. And you know what? We have so back to North America. We have an incredible opportunity to basically uh, replace Russia on everything that Russia does. That includes energy. That includes nickel. That includes wheat. All that type of stuff. It's a tremendous opportunity for us to be the friendly supplier to the world. Uh, we should take that. We should take that. And it will generate incredible economic benefits. It will allow us to help pay for some of the changes that we want to make and how we produce things and, and the sustainability of our, of our country, the, the sustainability of our people and so forth. But, you know, a lot of these things cost money and cost the economy. That's the reality that government, governments don't create anything. They redistribute money. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, we do have an opportunity in North America, but it's interesting. The German chancellor has been, uh, or president, has been both in Canada and Mexico recently. And it looks like Mexico is going to be the supplier of some gas to Europe, not Canada. And that's for some reasons that uh, we need to address. Uh, the U.S. and Canada are not great at building infrastructure. And here in Mexico, TC Energy just announced a giant project uh, to move gas across it. So there are some things we in the U.S. and Canada could learn from Mexico. And I'm not sure our listeners really uh, have focused on that. I, I that's a point that, that, that we've made as well. Um, I was at the meeting with the, with the German Chancellor. We have a big presence in Germany too, so, so we had some uh, discussions with them uh, also, right? And in, in, the, in, the, context, in, the, in the context of that, um, Germany basically said, look, we made a mistake with Russia. We're looking to replace them, and Canada can be part of it. Now, if we can, for example, produce a lot more gas and sell it out of the West Coast, then what happens is Korea buys more of our gas, and then you know people elsewhere can provide more to Germany. The, the Germans were were very good in terms of the numbers, but we have resources that can help the world. Right, um, the progress in the world um, in terms of everything from life expectancy to industry to prosperity, it's been carbon fueled for the last two hundred years. That's not going away. Great book by Vaclav Smil, professor at oh, uh, you yeah. know how the world really works. Everybody should. Uh, What's should the name of the book, you guys? Oh, it's Vaclav Smil, one of the I think Bill great. Gates has ca- called Bill him Gates one of the greatest wrong. writers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can put it in the show notes for this episode. Yes, yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, be, little Canusa Street Book Club happening right now. That's I right. That's right. I get no royalties on it, but but you know we have to make those. Those realistic, uh, realistic calls, and I do think that you know, in that context, use your prosperity to create the opportunity to make lives better for all. Our our vision statement as a company is making people's lives better by being the best we can be in the products we make and the services we provide. That can be a very good vision statement for government policy too. Uh, we're here in Mexico, and I, I can't help but think that as we went through the renegotiation of NAFTA that led us to the USMCA, or agreement of many names. Um, it was frequently observed that there's strong Canada-US relationship, there's a strong US-Mexico relationship, but the Canada-Mexico relationship is the weakest leg of the three. You're in an industry that brings you down here, you're interacting with Mexico. For our listeners, you know, many of them I think, because they're not Mexicans, think of Mexico circa 1980, and they haven't caught up with where Mexico is now. Can you talk a little bit about Mexico as it is now and the kind of partner Mexicans can be for Canada? Well, we're here because of that, right? We, 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 we are, 
it's great to start as a Canadian company with a base because we're so multicultural. We're, we're used to working with different people in the way they they work and the way they think and everything else. And so in the U.S., we're a U.S. company. If we're in Michigan, we're in Michigan. Down here, we're a Mexican company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually have more employees and more revenues in Mexico than we do in Canada or the United States. Is that right? Wow. Exactly. So, okay. so, so we're... We're like a walking model of how North America should work. And one of the reasons we're down here and spending a lot of time and working with governors and the Minister of the Economy we're going to see soon and everything else is just to basically say, you know, we are working together and there are many things that we can do together. Um, the USMCA, you know, there were discussions early on that it wasn't really a Canada issue. The U.S. wasn't concerned about Canada, but Canada basically said, and we were part of that, working with Christia Freeland and everything else, says, we need to understand this is a North American footprint. We have created a manufacturing industry, the biggest manufacturing industry in the world, the most important manufacturing industry in North America by effectively working together, making things together, and we can compete with the world. We export 2 million vehicles a year to the rest of the world from North America. That is the message to the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, a question on that. Uh, We've started to see monetary policy kind of syncing up, you know, so that uh, Mexico, Canada, your currencies move with the U.S. currency and we're becoming almost a a sort of block in North America, not as shifted. But as we're seeing the U.S. dollar being so strong right now, it's putting a lot of pressure on other economies. Do you think our monetary policy aiming at, you know, dealing with inflation is is global enough or is it a bit too nationalistic in terms of what we're trying to accomplish? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, people are all over the place. In terms of monetary policy, and, and and we also have a bifurcated world in terms of you know all kinds of other policies, including security and and uh, right. and yeah. uh, you know net zero and all that type of stuff. I think I think that we'll kind of sort it out. What we're seeing actually, and we need to have the discussion is where is the inflation issue? Like as a producer, we've seen actually prices stabilize and come down. So as, as soon as prices stop going up. Well, then you don't have inflation. So we've seen steel come down, aluminum come down, freight come down. You know, some energy prices come down, not in Europe. But uh, at the same time, the consumer has seen, you know, food prices go up and so forth. But a lot of that, you know, and I don't think we've done enough analysis. A lot of, a lot of that is the reaction of people that have been locked up for a long time. They say, I don't care if I'm paying more for my steak. I want to have a steak because for two years I couldn't go out and have a steak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That type of stuff. So we've got to work through it. I think the U.S. economy is fundamentally strong and sound. That's what we see. There's a lot of money on the sidelines. If you want to work, you can find a job. Um, your net worth is probably higher than it was 10 years ago. Um, and the U.S. does drive uh, North America. You know, Canada's a little, you know, Canada's got some issues perhaps with real estate and debt and that type of stuff. But they're the biggest supplier or, or our biggest customer is the United States. It's fundamentally sound. If your customer is healthy, that's a good thing. Makes we found difference. that in our business. Let me. We, we've only just got a couple minutes left. Let me ask you a little, uh, a little bit about politics. You talked about government policy. Yeah. You know, I think during the last U.S. administration, the our trading arrangement, the NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, had a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. Right, President of the United States who campaigned against it lived up to his word to threaten to tear it up, and. and Canada, Mexico, the United States, we managed to negotiate um, an agreement that I think is an improvement. It's not perfect, but it's better. And it's certainly a heck of a lot better than not having an agreement to do, especially in your industry and in auto building cars together. How much 
forward thinking do you do or how forward worrying do you do about a return of Trump? As an example, or Trump-like policies. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. A, it, it, you know, there's there's politics and there's discussion and there's reality. Mm -hmm. I think the exercise was very good because people realized how important it was to work together. And the interesting thing is that if you look at a scale, you know, um, President Trump started over here and he ended up over here. Like we're we're talking about modest differences to the fundamental agreement working through it, and and Martin Rayev. Uh, was was involved with all levels of government dealing with this. We actually helped write the definition of direction production worker because what happens is policymakers don't actually understand the industry. We do. Um, the Canadian government was very good at having a side by side in terms of the stuff. We saw draft legislation before anybody else did, and we worked on a number of those things. Implementation is going to have its uh, have its uh, have its issues, of course, because there's always some ambiguities. But I think we discovered that, hey, we do make things together. It's really important. And what we're seeing at this conference is a recognition of that, particularly, I find, from a lot of the American speakers that, hey, we realize that you're friends. And so people talk about nearshoring and everything else, and now I'm hearing more people talk about friendshoring. Mm -hmm. Remember who your friends are. Germany and Europe made a huge mistake basically making security decisions and economic decisions, forgetting who your friends were. So you, this is a lesson for the United States and for us here. Too. So you're not worried. Uh, well, I just want to. I'm always worried. Okay. I'm always thinking about you. <laughs> that's but, my job. All right, yeah. but 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 you know, with with if if Trump or a Trumpy person gets yeah. elected in the United States in a couple of years, um, I, what I'm hearing you say is it'll just cause us to come together and focus on what really matters. You know what? We're American too. Right. My CEO is American. We got five thousand employees in the United States. We produce a lot. We saw that whole thing is, you know, make make America great again can be make North America great again. I think we've kind of seen that. And a lot of the things that were done by that administration, you know, you cut through the rhetoric, etc., were good. Like, you know, less regulation, faster stuff moving. We saw the less regulation in the development of the vaccine. I think the great success in the whole fight against the pandemic was to basically say, and this is a business person talking, if you want something done, you give someone a P.O., Right? A purchase order. A purchase order. You give yeah. someone a purchase order and say, if you do this, I will buy it. The basics of that vaccine were done in three days. Yeah. That's how fast the response was. Yeah. That was, that was not a back to designers and gardeners. Like that was not a design response. It was basically there. We worked in, in Canada on, on ventilators and I had a meeting with the premier and a whole bunch of other people, the CEOs of Magna, CEO of Linamar and myself and our people said, how can we help? We're not making parts because the whole industry shut down. Yeah. How we help? So we need ventilators. We say, how much? How much do you need? Well, we have need we have twenty three hundred. We need thirty five hundred. We need twelve hundred, which is a lot less than forty thousand. Some people talked about, but we basically said, okay, we'll do this. We'll assemble. We'll find a way. We'll mobilize our resource. Who's writing the PO? Dead right. silence. Right. Dead silence. And finally, the premier, to his credit, says, "This is an emergency. Someone write the PO." This is the premier of Ontario, right. Doug, Doug Ford, Ford. At the time, it took and three days. They had a debate as to whether to recall the legislature in the middle of COVID to pass legislation so they could do a PO for ventilators. And let, lest we be, yeah, and it's a great story. And lest we be too uh, narrow in this, 
CAE uh, in Quebec, which yeah. does uh, aviation simulation mostly, sure. uh, also made ventilators. So yeah, you're right. A crisis pulls people together. Well, it's well, a can-do continent, and I think that's the exciting thing. And I, I look at USMCA to NAFTA. One of the great things we added was the ability to update it starting yeah. in 2026. Fantastic. Like why we passed an agreement 25 years ago with the idea that it was just going to yeah. be good for all eternity. Yeah. Now we're starting to have these conversations and I, I'm really well, pleased to have you as a guest because you've really been part of those conversations. We're getting smarter about North America. You're, You're so, so optimistic when you call it the ability to update it. When I What I see is the ability the ability to sunset it and I worry yeah. about that. But anyway, Rob, yeah. so great to have you. Uh, thank you for joining us. You can have us. a beautiful sunset though. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. A sunset on USMCA would not be beautiful. It would be catastrophic. Uh, it would be apocalyptic. It would be a nuclear sunset. What, what, what strong language can I use? Anyway, uh, ho let's hope we don't. Well, yeah, I, I have this vision now of, uh, of of Rob, our guest, uh, on the like Slim Pickens on the bomb going down, and Doctor Strange Love, you know, going out in the sunset, making it fabulous. But luckily, we are not near the apocalypse yet. And part of the reason is the great contributions you've made to public policy as well as to our economy. Rob Wildeboer, great to have you. Right. Thank you so much Good for being here. on Canusa Street. Thanks for coming. Well, Chris, Rob sure has a lot of opinions about a lot of things, but he comes from a place of knowledge, being one of the largest uh, automotive parts suppliers uh, in the world. Right. He's where the rubber meets the road. And his sense of Mexico, much more sophisticated, I think, for many Canadians. Um, he's also somebody who's seen governments come and go. He's seen trade agreements come and go. And he stayed focused on the importance of delivering a competitive product. And I think it shows the strength of Canada, uh, but also the commitment Canadians have to making that community work, making the relationship with the U.S. work, making the relationship with Mexico work. Uh, we could we could learn a lot from, from Rob, and I, it was just great to have him talking about some practical aspects of doing business on Canusa Street. That's exactly right. Okay, my friend, we'll see you next time. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.